check. Welcome to Ballot's Room Check, the only place where you can't get docked for a noise complaint. Today we have Dr. Gruber. He's a staple in TAMS. Everyone knows his name. So welcome. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be here. We're so happy to have you here. When we were all brainstorming about podcasts, yours was quite literally the first name which came up. So I hope none of our future guests get offended by that. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it really was, I know at least from my experience in McConnell, like your seminar talks just kind of like, I felt like you were one of the admin that we all like really knew, you know? Well, that, that makes me feel good. I, I have tried during my five years at TAMS to create a relationship and a rapport with students so that students could feel comfortable talking with me about any issue uh, that was on their mind. And uh, so that, that makes me happy. <laughs> and it's also just kind of crazy in general to be meeting over Zoom instead of <laughs> in yeah. person or anything. Indeed, indeed. I know, at least for myself, like Zoom classes in general have been very different. <laughs> yes, the, I, I was one of the first people at my former university way, way back about 15 years ago who taught an online course. We didn't have anything fancy. Um, we had PowerPoints and then we typed our lectures. So imagine a student opening up a Microsoft Word document and it's 15 to 20 pages long. And it's just like another reading assignment. It's not a lecture, it, it wasn't interactive. Um, and so hopefully faculty, not only at UNT, but around the country, uh, indeed around the world, are utilizing the technology that we have today in a much more dynamic since mm -hmm. definitely like oh there are completely benefits to online learning i know i've been utilizing like just more online things in general like planning apps on my computer and like pomodoro timers and things i'd never tried before and these little things that i've tried in this like new scenario i've realized like wow they're actually really helpful like i'm going to keep on using these even if we shift back to in person so at least there's some silver lining to all of this yes mm -hmm. Okay, so for our first Tam's question, it's somewhat related to this. Someone asked, how have your habits changed since before quarantine? Oh, wow. Um, gosh, that's a, it's a, it's an easy question. And then it's a complex question. Um, in a huge way, the pandemic, the quarantine, isolation, whatever we want to call it, has not affected uh, my view of the world. Uh, really, or of life. Uh, my mentor from my undergraduate years died in 2001, and I know that some, most of you listening were not even alive then. Um, but that was two years after uh, he hired me to come back to my alma mater to teach in the history department. And so he and I were colleagues uh, for two years before he died after my being his student uh, years before. And so um, that was a, a really unique time in my life. Um, and at his eulogy, uh, his rabbi asked me to say a few words uh, during the service. And I did, and I, I spoke for a, a few minutes. And then following the memorial service, the rabbi kind of took me aside, put his arm around me and took me aside uh, and asked if I was Jewish. And I explained I wasn't, but the rabbi looked at me and said, you should be. So I, I've always valued uh, humanity. Um, as a historian, I've, I've studied different groups of people uh, from reading about them in, in history books, but also uh, learning about people and individuals uh, in having a meal together. Um, and so that's, that's, that has been a, a change that I haven't been able to do uh, for months. Um, but, you know, I, I look at um, the value of life and um, I try to appreciate it 
uh, every day. And that kind of brings me to my next point, and I, I won't provide too much detail, but uh, most people don't know that I have experienced three near-death health events during the last 12 years. Um, and following the first scare, which was the worst of the three, but um, still had three total, I sort of sat back as I was recovering from home and uh, really thinking about my priorities and, and what life meant to me. And I decided that death is going to come for all of us. Um, and so we have to make the most of, of each minute of every day. And so I, I find myself asking, you know, am I demonstrating my love and affection and care and compassion for everyone in my life? Uh, friends, family, my TAMS colleagues, my students, my current students, and my previous students, uh, many of whom uh, I follow on Facebook or LinkedIn or, or any other platform. And I think the most important question I, I try to ask myself on a regular basis is, do all of those people know that I care for them? And so, um, you know, that's, I, I've used Zoom, I've uh, used Facebook and, and FaceTime and text messaging and all sorts of things in the last six months just to stay in touch with people. Um, I think I, I want to throw out uh, as my last point, and uh, I know I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, uh, but you guys already know I'm old, so it doesn't matter. Um, not extremely, trust me. There's been older. <laughs> if, if you're not, if those of you who are listening are, are not familiar with the name George Harrison, um, he was one of the Fab Four, the Beatles. Uh, he was perhaps the least well-known, um, but in my mind, the just as philosophical as John Lennon. Uh, but uh, in his solo career, George Harrison wrote and recorded a song called What Is Life? And if you are unfamiliar uh, with that song or with George Harrison, um, I would recommend that uh, you go on YouTube uh, right now, put this interview on pause, go to YouTube, uh, type in George Harrison, What Is Life, and listen to the song. Um, it, it would be really cool if everyone on the planet adopted the sentiments of uh, George Harrison. I'm actually quite literally taking note of that right now <laughs> on a sticky note because that sounds really amazing. I know, at least for me, quarantine itself, just the act has been different, but especially a lot of events that have happened this quarantine. As I know largely, um, I was very involved this quarantine in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, as soon as George Floyd's death happened, it was kind of, I consider myself slightly radical for a while, but it was a moment that like very radicalized me. And I was like, this is the point where I need to take action. And one thing that really blew my mind, I'm still thinking about this, it's been months, but at one point I went to my city council meeting and I went to go speak to like my mayor and all of our board members. And there were a couple people there, as many as they could allow with like social distancing. And there was this one like very, very elderly old man sitting in the front. And I was like, I don't really know this man. I sat a row behind him and like, it was very small interactions. Like I, he dropped his book, so I picked it up for him. And he spoke at the very end of the meeting and he was talking about his experiences in racism. And he was like, you don't realize how far away this is for us. He was like, you know the story of Emmett Till. You learn it in your books. I went to Emmett Till's funeral. I was his friend. And he's like, you, like everyone thinks it was so far away, but my best childhood friend got killed by this. And he's talking about that. And it, a lot of the whole movement and hearing these like personalized story really made me also reevaluate like what type of impact do we want to have on the world when like we leave? Cause it's inevitable, you know, like at least for me, when I consider my meaning of life, I think of it as I want to make as much of a positive impact on other people before, you know, something happens cause we can never guarantee anything. So yeah. It's just been interesting. I wonder, I noticed from your Facebook, you were very political. And I find that honestly, like great to see. <laughs> 
it's uh, quite literally a highlight of my day when I go on my Facebook feed and I see like your new commentary on whatever news has just recently happened. And it also serves to keep me updated. But I was, I think a question that we got is, let me move my Zoom little thing. How do you feel about the political climate of the U.S. right now? Um, well, I, I guess I want to dispel a myth. Um, a lot of people think that the United States is so divided um, in 2020 and that somehow this political division is new, that it's, it's something that has developed over the last 20 years or the last 40 years. And I just want to drop some, some incidents, some names, um, and encourage uh, everyone listening to read a little bit of U.S. history. Um, U.S. history is, is not um, a feel-good story. Uh, it, is, it is not... Um, it is not a, a, a country that uh, just sort of sprang up and, and we now have rights for everyone and, and that kind of thing. It is, it is messy and we're hopefully not finished yet. Um, but I, I do want to dispel this myth. So, um, you know, I, I'll ask the readers, uh, or the, I'm sorry, not the readers, but the listeners, you know, have you... Have you read about uh, the very public disagreements between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson during the, really the first two years of the United States under the U.S. Constitution? Uh, they, they made no bones uh, that they hated each other. Uh, in fact, uh, Hamilton, when Aaron Burr uh, killed Alexander Hamilton in the duel, Thomas Jefferson allegedly uh, was a little happy. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's, they, they did not like each other. Um, and the same thing goes for Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Um, you know, John Adams and, and Jefferson, I, I don't know if the listeners know this, and Abby, I don't know if you know this. I probably don't. <laughs> but, but Adams and Jefferson died on the same day. And I'm not going to tell you the year or the date because it is really spooky and eerie. Um, but, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but, <laughs> one them, but one of them sat up and asked a question of everyone around him and made a statement that he lives, that there was this feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm dying before him. And, you know, it was just that sort of, of tension. Um, has anyone read about the presidential campaign of 1824? Um, Andrew Jackson, um, who was an extremely successful general during the War of 1812, very popular in Tennessee, and yet... Um, his political opponents accused his wife of uh, bigamy, and legally she was. Um, she was indeed married to her former husband and Andrew Jackson at the same time because the paperwork on the divorce from the first husband had not been signed, although it had been filed in a court. And so Jackson's political opponents went on, uh, went out into the, the public squares and put it in print uh, in newspapers and pamphlets. And Jackson's wife happened to die a very young age. And he always said that she died of a broken heart and he always blamed his political opponents. And when he became president in 1829, he began going after those political opponents. And uh, so there, there's a, a little bit of interesting story there. Um, and then we have Jackson, the same, 
uh, and his vice president, John C. Calhoun. Now, if you don't know anything about John C. Calhoun and his wife, Florida, and no, they were from South Carolina, that just happened to be her first name, Florida Calhoun was a piece of work. And Florida, I, in fact, of all the people I've ever studied in history, Florida would be at my dinner table. If I could invite four or five people from history, she would be one. But she ran around Washington, D.C., talking about Jackson's friend's wife. And Andrew Jackson walked in one day to um, the Oval Office and told his vice president, you will either tell your wife to stop talking or you will resign. Well, Calhoun resigned and went back to South Carolina and ran for Senate and won. And so for the next few years, Jackson and Calhoun waged this battle out from the White House to the U.S. Senate. Um, and then I think one of the, the more fun yet tragic stories is Senator Preston Brooks. Um, Senator Brooks attacked another senator on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 1856 and literally beat the senator's brains in, cracked his skull, didn't kill him, but cracked his skull. And in response, Senator Brooks's constituents mailed him hundreds of new canes. That's just, that's just up to 1856. You know, I haven't even mentioned that little Civil War thing where 650,000 plus guys lost their lives. The country spent billions of dollars on the war. And all that happens in the first hundred years of the United States. So to look at 2020 and say, well, we're more divided than we've ever been. I don't know if you can get more divided than the Civil War. You know, that, that, that's pretty divided. I mean, we had 11 states that tried to make their own country. I don't, I don't know how you get that far. So it's just this myth that the current political climate is so much different. No, it's more public. We have Twitter and we have Instagram and we have phones and everyone has a camera that can easily be turned on and record everything in real time. You know, we have Bob Woodward, the reporter who released recordings today of his interviews with President 45. And we now have real evidence of things that people had only speculated about. But that hits, you know, that hit the news uh, midday, and now you really can't open any app or any software program, any website that's, that's dealing with the news and not see that. So political division, not a new thing. Visibility, yes. Things are more visible and more open. I can definitely agree with that. I like personally, I before I got social media, before I was exposed to the internet, it was very much like echoing my parents' views, not really knowing anything. And I think as soon as I got like my first little bit of internet access, I like, I don't think there's quite as much influence. Some people like to argue like, oh, children's like brains are like rotted by the internet. I think I was given the freedom to discover what I truly believed in and that strongly impacted my views. And I know I have friends who used to have different <laughs> opinions than me and like through our friendship, we've both grown <laughs> and they, their main critique is they say I didn't have that access to a lot of information beforehand. They were like, my parents were very controlling. They didn't let me look at like other news sources other than like Fox News. You know, they were like, we only watch Fox News in my house. We didn't watch anything else. And then as they grew up and they became more exposed to a lot of like the real incidents that were happening, they realized a lot of the beliefs that they held when they were younger didn't reflect their actual beliefs, that they were just echoing those of those around them. Yeah. And then, at least for me, I'm a big, sadly, I'm slightly obsessed with my Twitter. <laughs> and that, 
that definitely has an impact on how I view news as well. Like the Twitter news thing, I actually very much appreciate a lot of it. It definitely involves fact checking when you see things mm -hmm. online, but I think it's great to see a lot of stuff primarily from like sources that wouldn't otherwise be shown. Like when there's someone saying like, oh, I live in this state that's on the news currently and I can tell you what's going on. And you're like, wow, I wouldn't have received this information otherwise. Right, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, we had another question, which I guess once again ties into our <laughs> online social media. Uh, someone asked, what's the best way to deal with misinformation? Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> read, 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 read. Um, I, I think, well, humans have become very lazy when it comes to learning. We, we want to be told. And, you know, years ago, decades ago, centuries ago, it was, okay, so I push this button, what happens? You know, if, if I get hit with something, then over time I learn not to push that button because it's going to hit me. Uh, experience, you know, Misinformation is not a new thing. Um, you know, you, we had um, newspaper editors during the United States War for Independence, dare I say the um, American Revolution, whatever that means. Um, but the, the United States War for Independence, we had editors and people printing pamphlets about things that just weren't true. Um, the British soldiers torturing uh, the Minutemen, um, you know, and uh, Patriots Arise, and, and all of these types of things. Um, and so, it, you know, misinformation is, is, not, is not a new invention. Um, you know, you, you read back to the, the years, millennia ago where you know a, a group of people came together wherever they lived on the planet and they decided that they needed to be organized in some way that they needed to have some mechanism for defending themselves uh, and it might be that <clears throat> their water supply was threatened by another group of people and so the, this this first group got together and they decided, okay, these, these people, the, these members of our group are going to be in charge of defending our water supply. And so those people now are guarding the water supply, but they can't hunt and gather food. And so the community, the group of people then has to make a decision, okay, we are going to hunt and gather enough food to feed the people who are protecting our water supply. And so, you know, if, if that sounds like uh, a modern version of the U.S., the United States Department of Defense and the U.S. military, it's exactly what it is. Um, you know, how many, how many days uh, does a, a pilot in the United States Navy not fly? but that person still gets a paycheck. And so we are paying people to do certain jobs that don't necessarily produce something. They don't make anything, but they provide a service. And so, you know, from, from this organization state, this organizational stage of, of humans all the way to today, this, this concept of misinformation has always been to either gain power or to maintain power. And usually misinformation is, is used by those who want to gain power and then once they're in power, they continue to use it to manipulate the human psyche, uh, whether it's fear or profit or whatever it is, and, and I don't use profit in the sense of 2020. Um, you know, go back 
2,500 years. Go back 5,000 years. And, you know, you can put, you, you can attribute the word prophet to a lot of different things. And so, um, you know, misinformation is, is not new. Um, it's just, you know, more public. How do you deal with it? Do your research. Uh, read. And, you know, my, one of my favorite sources is The Economist. Uh, it is pricey. So if you, if you look it up, uh, be sitting down when you do. Uh, some of you are, are, you know, you might faint. Um, but The Economist is a British-based publication. Uh, it is weekly. But The Economist editors and writers do such a great job of incorporating history and historical context to explain the events that are happening or that happened the, the week before. And so, you know, it, that, that's one of my go-tos um, for current events, especially if you are interested in global current events. Uh, Reuters is another one, uh, R-E-U-T-E-R-S, Reuters. Uh, the Guardian, which is actually out of uh, Great Britain, but again, uh, most of the time, Europeans, non-U.S. Non residents do a, a much better job in, in covering uh, U.S. events and filtering through that misinformation. So, and then talk to people who know something about the topic. Um, you know, and I don't mean to say talk to someone who has an opinion about the topic. Knowing something and having an opinion about something are, are very different things. Um, and so, you know, talk to someone who has knowledge about the topic. And then once you read, you read some more, you talk to someone who, who is in the field or who knows something about the issue, and then you read some more. And then hopefully by the time you are 45 or 50 years old, my age, you might have a clue as to who you can trust with at least more accuracy. And, and notice I did not say accurate or the truth, but more accuracy than other sources. Definitely. I Consulting like other sources has also been a thing that I've learned during quarantine. Because sometimes you see things on one source and it's very much like, people even just headlines in general a headline will say something people will jump on it they'll say like what's happening and you actually open the article or you like look up the case and you're like that is not what the headline like conveyed at all and with misinformation especially it's one thing i've learned which i have reluctantly learned is sometimes when you're like talking to people who have different opinions than you and like factually some of their opinions are based in like just they're not true you sometimes have to they won't accept learning <laughs> that's i think one of the hardest things for me when i have a conversation with someone and they say something and i'm like actually like factually that's not true like this is it and they're like i don't want to learn about this or they're very stubborn and stick to their opinions and at one point it's like accepting like i can't change what they think you know they'll have to do it in their own time you know i tried my part but you know <laughs> sometimes you just have to step back Yeah. Um, so I think our next question, so since we're on the topic of politics and history, I think this will be very interesting. What do you think of the Electoral College and how should third parties be represented in America? So I'm very excited personally to hear your response. Okay. Now, can you ask the second part of that question again? Oh, I, yeah. Um, so what, how should third parties be represented in America? Okay. All right, so I'll answer the part about the Electoral College first, because that may be the simplest. Um, what do I think? The Electoral College was designed to protect the least populated states regions of the United States. 
um, the whole the whole purpose was so that Boston, Massachusetts, and New York City and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, did not have more influence in who became president than people living in the little bitty colony state of Georgia or the small but moderately populated Rhode Island. So I, I do not have a fundamental problem with the Electoral College. And, you know, some, someone out there is thinking right now, well, you know, what about the person who wins the popular vote? Well, okay, Let, let's think about this. Three states, California, Florida, and New York, those three states have approximately 80 million people in them. Okay, imagine three states have 80 million people living in them. Now, of course, not all of those people can vote. They're not registered to vote. They may not be eligible to vote, but they got 80 million people. And as a statistic, I, I, I just recently looked this up, but I, I welcome anyone to correct me because I, I could be off half a million or so. But if I remember correctly, in the 2016 presidential election, approximately 138 million votes were cast. So just taking raw numbers, and I know that this is not a scientific way to do it, but if we just take 138 million votes that were cast, and we suppose that those three states, California, Florida, and New York, and again, I know not all of those 80 million people can vote, but if, but if they could, or if they did, those three states would determine who became president. And the other 47 states, the multiple territories, Puerto Rico, Samoa, all of those, all of those other territories, they wouldn't even matter. Those people would not even have to get out of bed. They wouldn't have to go vote. They wouldn't have to, you know, get uh, an umbrella and their rain boots on. Just stay home because we know those three states, we know who they're going to vote for. That's not what the founders had in mind. And that's why I think the Electoral College still serves a purpose as long as we have states with huge population concentrations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for being equal and, and promoting equity and, and those things, but being equal and something being equitable are different things. And so I, I think we have to maintain the value of every voter and every state uh, in the United States and, and the multiple territories and protect those citizens' voices um, in a presidential election. So, um, you know, the other thing I, I will throw out about the Electoral College, and you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, if, if this state, if more people in this state vote for this presidential candidate, then all the electors from that state have to vote for that person. Unless, unless that state has a law that says that, no, the electors can vote for whichever candidate each elector wants to vote for. And so um, you may have heard recently that the federal government is trying to enact a piece of legislation that says that whichever candidate wins the popular vote in a state all of that state's electoral votes go to that candidate. Well, the bill hasn't passed because there are people from small states, not heavily populated states, who are saying, no, the federal government's not going to tell us what to do. And just in case you're wondering, um, 
even the presidential election is controlled by the states, the manner of voting and, and all of those things. And that's why Trump and, and some of these states are having discussions, disagreements, debates about how a state is handling it, its election and its ballots. Um, the states are, are sovereign right now when it comes to um, conducting an election, even for the presidency. Now, third parties, that's a little more complex. And Abby, you used the term, how should third parties be represented, correct? All right. I'm not really sure what that means, but I'll take a, I'll take a shot. I know a lot of people living in the United States think that the U.S. was never supposed to have a two-party system, that we were supposed to be a democracy and anyone could run for office and yada, yada, yada. Well, that all sounds good, except until you read what all of those well-off, well-read, now-dead white dudes wrote and said about the U.S. Constitution and how even before any state had ratified the Constitution, that those white guys had begun dividing among themselves. Um, you know, James Madison wrote uh, Federalist Number 10 and talked about political factions and that political factions were, for the most part, bad, but that they could maintain some sense of balance. But Madison didn't hesitate to go over to Thomas Jefferson's side when um, John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and even George Washington began talking about creating a strong central government, a federal system of government. And so, again, even before one of the, the states in the United States had ratified the U.S. Constitution, we already had a two-party system. And, and so that, that myth that, oh, we, we weren't supposed to be this way, or why are we this way? Well, read a little bit of history, and it's, it's pretty easy to figure out, um, you know, why, why it happened. As far as third parties go and third-party candidates, I don't have a problem um, with the existence of third parties, but I do have a problem with the candidates that some of the third parties choose to represent them. And, you know, I'm not going to name any names or, or any years, but feel free to go look up any third party candidates uh, that have ever run for president for whatever the name of their party was. But look at their experience, look at their resumes. And, you know, did they have any experience in any type of government office or government agency? Or were they, you know, just a copy or repair guy? Um, don't go look that up. That's actually true. Um, you know, a former dog catcher. Nothing wrong with being a dog catcher. But, you know, can you be president if your third party gets enough votes? Um, so it, it's the candidates that the third parties choose that, that are my, my biggest problem. But I do want to do a little teaching with this question. And um, I, I don't know if, if anyone listening remembers or knows about H. Ross Perot. Um, Ross Perot, huh? I don't believe I do. No? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you a few things about Ross Perot, but you, you can go and read about him. He was a very interesting guy. Um, I, there are things about him that, that I wish he hadn't said or done, but um, he, 
he certainly made a difference in, in his later years in life. But Ross Perot um, founded a technology company in the 60s. Um, and, and yes, I know Ross Perot's history because I was fascinated with him uh, when I was in graduate school. Um, but he, he had worked for IBM and basically the company got mad at him and he got mad at the company. And so he broke off, took what he knew, started a new company and uh, was able to get uh, a lot of government contracts to build um, databases and, and other technology um, devices and, and things that government could use. Uh, U.S. government, state of Texas, and, and other states. In 1992, Ross Perot ran for the presidency of the United States. And he had a very simple platform, and I, I remember this very well. He wanted to reduce military spending so that the United States could balance the budget. Uh, that was a big issue uh, during that time because the national debt had gone from about $900 billion in 1980 to about $3 trillion in 1989. And interest rates had gone up uh, and just the U.S. had had a recession. And so Ross Perot came in and said, you know, if we balance the budget, things will, will be better for the consumers. Uh, they'll be able to buy more stuff. We'll be able to make more stuff. So that, that was one part of his platform. The other part of his platform was to create an electronic system that would allow people to vote from home. And Ross Perot said that this would help the United States create a direct democracy. Now, Perot didn't say anything about the Electoral College necessarily, but there, there would have had to have been a, a few changes made called amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Um, but Perot's idea of voting from home became very attractive to a lot of people, especially people 55 and older. Um, and I thought it was a fascinating concept uh, studying history as a graduate student. Well, in the election, Ross Perot received about 19% of the popular vote, which had never happened before, uh, given the, the number of votes that uh, people had cast. And some historians and political scientists argue, even to this day, that that 19% of the popular vote pulled voters away from then-President George H.W. Bush, the incumbent, to Bill Clinton, who was the governor of Arkansas, and very few people before he decided to run for uh, the presidency had heard of Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton's campaign was riddled with scandals, um, rumors, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and if you know about Monica Lewinsky, when Clinton was in his second term as president, just kind of extrapolate that backwards to uh, Clinton's campaign in 92. And it was just a, a constant, okay, so, you know, what has Governor Clinton done or said today? Um, and so you, you opened up your newspaper, you, you know, you know, no cell phone apps back then. And, uh, you know, what, what's going on? So I think the interesting part of this, and, and we're talking about third parties and third party candidates. If the United States had had a parliamentary system in 1992, Ross Perot would have become a part of the United States government because Clinton won a plurality of the vote, but vote, but not a majority of the vote. So in order to get enough votes to 
in a sense, get control of the U.S. government. Again, this is in a parliamentary system, not, not the U.S. Congress that we have right now. But Clinton and Perot would have had to create uh, a coalition government, and Perot probably would have had a lot of influence on things that got done by the federal government. Um, instead, Perot just sort of went away uh, for a, a couple of years. Perot did run again uh, in 1996, but did not have near the popularity um, then that he had in 92. So, you know, are third parties important? Are third party candidates important? Can they have an influence? They can, but they haven't. And part of that lies on the shoulders of the third party leadership. It lies on the, the shoulders of the third party candidates themselves. But it also rests at the, at the feet of the founders of the United States who didn't have any intention of having um, a multi-party system. Well, that definitely makes sense. It's, I saw things about how someone had written about the third parties like in general and they were saying like while like it would be an amazing amazing idea for like someday soon for there to be a really great third party candidate and for them to win they were like realistically that probably won't happen because right now they were like as much as people are involved in politics and are like taking these steps forward there's the same amount if not even more politic um, more amount of people that just go to vote and they just go like straight whatever their political party is and they don't do enough research into candidates which is why there is that push to like look into your candidates like look at like what they believe like try to see like actually who you're voting for rather than just voting for whatever party you align with but it's you think maybe in the future <laughs> once again it's just very very far ahead and then also the there's no quite as with the Democratic National Convention and like the Republican National Convention and like these large platforms and the debates on either side, there's not quite something as large for third party candidates. Right, right. So I was like, as far as I know, I hope that there's not some secret like third party like gathering that I just didn't know about. <laughs> well, uh, okay, Abby, those parties do hold their own meetings, conventions, whatever you want to call them, but none of the media, the mainstream media cover them. And so they, they are in the shadows, so to speak. Now I need to start looking up clips from those. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I had a suspicion that there probably were, but you're absolutely yeah. correct. Like yeah. it's not shown in the media whatsoever. Yeah. Have, you, have you seen the candidate for the Libertarian party on television stations? I don't even know who the candidate is. <laughs> Ah, there's a, there's a reason for that. You know, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, um, ABC, they, they don't pay any attention. Okay, so nearing the end-ish, we have yeah. some more fun questions, I believe. Oh, more fun. This has been fun. This has been fun. This has been like honestly very interesting to me. And it's also served as a reminder that I need to do my US history homework. So <laughs> I'm like thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh wow, that learning curve is due Friday. Huh, maybe I should get started on that. But okay, so our first question, and once again, I am like actually so excited to hear these answers because coming to TAMS and being put in that like TAMS 2021 group chat for the first time, there were so many stories shared. There were rumors that TAMS kids hacked the Pentagon. There were rumors that there was money laundering. I didn't know what to believe at that point. So the question is, what is one of the strangest things you've had to deal with happening at TAMS? For example, I heard that there was a tradition of pulling fire alarms and stealing McConnell signs. You know, I, I will say that I have been exempt from strange things happening at TAMS. Uh, I think Mr. Stuckel would, would have a lot more stories uh, than I do, but you know, there, there are stories that I, I hear and I, I can't mention them because I don't know if they're true, but I do know that TAMS students are creative. 
Um, and I wish that TAM students would put more energy investment time into inventing things like teleportation <laughs> or affordable solar energy or nuclear powered cars than they do trying to find shortcuts in completing homework. I I do recognize that because I was thinking just the other day, I was like, wow, if I, I was thinking about how many songs and TV show episodes I have completely memorized. Like the other day, this is, I doubt that you would know this not growing up as Gen Z, sadly, but <laughs> Beauty and the Beat was a staple back when it first came out with Justin Bieber and Nicki Minaj. And I was in the car and I was playing a throwback playlist and I was like, I know every word. And I think I was like, so young when I first listened to this song and I was like, oh, maybe if I memorized my physics equations like this, you know, I would really be on top. But yeah, yeah no so I, 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 I'm sorry that I, I can't really offer a, a good answer. Um, I, I can't think of anything that I would consider strange. Um, and, you know, I, I think what your listeners need to remember, Abby, is that I taught high school before I became a professor. So I saw a lot of stuff there that kind of makes everything else normal. Are you at liberty to share some of your high school stories? Oh, yeah. Um, I had students nominate me for a kiss a pig contest. Um, the students on student council at, at the high school where I taught came up with a kiss a pig contest to raise money for diabetes. And uh, that was a huge health issue in uh, even the, the middle-aged and younger people who lived in the community where I taught. And they, one of the students asked me, you know, can we nominate you? Can you be one of the, the candidates? And I said, well, tell me how it works. And they said, well, each day we will tally all of the money that students, other teachers, staff put in your jar in the office. And we will announce every morning who is in the lead and whoever has the most money collected in their name at the end of the month that person has to kiss a pig. And I thought that could be fun. So I said, yes, I will, I will do that. And of course, word spread to the principals that I volunteered. But the band director at the school, he and I were really good friends. Um, we had a lot of students in common because I was teaching uh, AP students and, you know, smart, smart students are, are always playing musical instruments or, or singing. And so we always uh, had a lot of stories to tell about the students that we had in common. But he was also nominated and he accepted the nomination. And um, what happened is that two of the assistant principals had their checkbooks out on the last day of the contest and cornered the student council president who was counting the money and said, how much do you need for Groover and this other person, the band director, to have them tie? <laughs> they tried to cheat the system. <laughs> Because they, they wanted us both to have to kiss this pig. So we both tied, and it was announced the next morning that at the next basketball game, high school basketball game, um, no, 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 it was a pep rally, pep rally. At the next pep rally, we would go out onto the gym floor in front of all the students and teachers and staff, and we would kiss the pig. And sure enough, um, that's what happened. And a local news crew showed up and filmed the event 
and the band director and I were on the, the news that evening. Uh, and I think I still have a recording of it. And please share that recording with us. <laughs> and, and just for kicks, I kissed the, and they, of course they put red lipstick on the pig. Uh, and uh, so the, the band director and I had lipstick on our, on our mouths. But I also turned it around and I kissed the pig uh, just above the tail on, on his posterior <laughs> because I told my students that if I won, I would do that. I would kiss it on the mouth and on the tail end. And all of that was, was on video and um, showed on the news. And so that was a really strange but cool event uh, that I got to be a part of um, as, a, as a teacher. That's actually amazing to hear. And it's awesome that it was all like, wow, it was a crazy experience. It was all for an awesome cause. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have, I, sadly, there were so many questions that people submitted and I'm looking at all these and I'm like, gosh, like these are all so good. But these are the last three, like quick rapid fire fun questions. They don't need to be exactly rapid fire, but one person very simply asked where to find more caffeine. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I don't know. I, I can't drink caffeine, which on some days I, I think must be horrible. Um, yeah, caffeine and, and my body don't, don't do well together. So I, I can't be much help. I can tell you what my daughter does. Um, she has a, a special brand of coffee, Cafe Bustelo, Busteo, or something like that. And uh, it wakes her up just fine. So I don't know if that's an illegal marketing ploy, but that's, that's all I can tell you. Well, at least we've got that sponsorship money now. <laughs> I can, I don't know if this is quite allowed for Tamsters, but I can share my own experiences with caffeine. And that was the night before, I think a biology or some exam of some sort. I maxed out my personal amount of caffeine. I believe I had a full cup of black coffee. I had a 11 out of 10 strength espresso shot. I had five or six pieces of the caffeinated chocolates, which half one piece is equal to half a cup of coffee. And I think that night I saw God. <laughs> yeah. And you're lucky you didn't end up in the emergency room. I'm very happy about that. And that was also one of the very first times I had coffee in all of, in like my entire life. I barely, I don't drink coffee at all. I was like, I need to stay up all night. Oh, Abby, no. no. At least now that I'm home, there's, I don't drink coffee at all, but there's a limit in like how late I can sleep up because I, my house is structured. So I sleep right next to my mom. And if my light's on past 2 a.m., screams. <laughs> she's like why are you still awake at this point don't you see the light is hurting my eyes and I'm like okay so there's it's a McConnell-esque curfew but in my own house yes yes okay the next question which I am very curious about what is the thing you hate most about hamsters hmm. that word actually I, 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 I don't like that term. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, that, that's, I, there's nothing that, oh, hate is such a strong word. Um, I, I try to reserve that for, you know, special people or, or things. Yeah, um, I can agree with that. But I, I wonder what I do hate in this world. I don't even know. <laughs> well, the, yeah, I mean, there are things that I hate, and I, I try, I try not to feel hate toward other people. But that, yeah, the term "tamster," I oh, tamster. The first time I heard it, I thought, "What?" And I, I thought, I mean, my my immediate reaction was, "That seems demeaning." It seems a little condescending. It it makes ham students seem less than they are, and so yeah, I guess that would be the the one thing I dislike about hams or ham students is that 
term that some people use to describe you all. But I, you know, I, in, in terms of hate or, or dislike, everyone knows that, that I don't like the Tam's amoeba. And Abby, I don't know that I've used that term with your class, but. I don't think that you have. Yeah, I the, can the, make assumptions based on the term though. The, the Tam's amoeba, I, I guess I thought of that in the fall of 2017. I've been at TAMS about two years. And it's, it's just, you know, all of a sudden it's class time and all of the TAMS students show up at once out of nowhere. You know, it's just the amoeba comes and, and it's, it's here. And, you know, it, it shapes itself into the different seats and around the room and all that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, you all are still kind of a, a one, uh, a, a single entity. Um, but you know that, if that's the worst thing I can think of, that's not bad. I can, firsthand I've seen that. I was a very, I get scared on the morning of classes when I was in UNT and I would leave for my classes like minimum 20 minutes before they started. So that led to me like sitting in my classes abnormally early, most of the time before the professors even arrived. <laughs> and I saw that every morning at 8 a.m. biology second semester, I would arrive, the lights would still be off, the professor isn't there yet. I would sit down and like I turn around one by one, like a couple people would come in and then all of a sudden, I think it was like usually 7.53 or 7.54 on the dot. They would all come in and I just watched like the doors start flooding and everyone come in. I found it very entertaining in the morning. And we asked you to prepare a question for us. I say us. It's me with my camera on right now. Jashmini's also here. Okay. Um, so do we, do we have time just for the one question? I just want to be sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then this is the surprise question. How do TAM students' views of political and social issues align with their parents and or other family members? In other words, TAM students move away, they meet new people, and they change, theoretically. So do TAM students have the same political views, social views of, uh, as their parents? It's actually really cool that you brought up this question because I had just last night had a conversation with a TAMS friend about this. And she was saying how when, before she came to TAMS, she was very sheltered. She grew up in like, a, she said it was a very like predominantly Indian upper middle class like area so she didn't get much exposure just saying when she came to TAMS like her first interactions like she met her roommate and her roommate almost like opened up her world like telling her stories and she learned so much and she absorbed so much information she was talking about how being back home has made it hard when it's like it's like you've opened up this entire new world and all of a sudden you're kind of like close back into the small box and I, at least for myself, my political views haven't changed as much, but I believe that's because my parents always gave me a lot of freedom to explore my own political views on my own. They never quite imposed any to me. Actually, if I was to say something, I'd say it's more my sister and I changing my parents' political views, <laughs> but they never really, they were never strict with that, with me believing something. They let us watch whatever news we want. <laughs> and so it wasn't a big change for me coming to TAMS, but I've, seen so many people say like leaving my house leaving that like one structured mindset has drastically changed and especially experiencing like college life in general seeing student organizations seeing like a lot of things in action getting that higher education overall has they said made them a better person <laughs> so yeah i believe that that's the end of our podcast today this I am so grateful for your advice at the beginning to stay calm because this was such an enjoyable conversation. <laughs> I'm glad. Glad. That's that's what it's supposed to be. That's that's what any interview is supposed to be. It, it's supposed to be, um, you know, obviously polite, but 
you know, you ask some tough questions and um, I did my best to give good, maybe too long answers. Um, I think your answers were a great length. Honestly, they were both like answering the questions and really informative, at least for myself. I feel like, who knows, maybe, do I even need to open up my history book after this? <laughs> Hopefully not. But honestly, I felt like I learned something, like a lot of stuff from just this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And we're so grateful for your acceptance of our invitation to be the first ever interviewee of the valid podcast abby i will tell you yes Fina, i can't see you but i will tell you a little tear came to my eye when i opened up your email because i'm flattered to be the first this is really cool dr know that you hold such a special role in the tams environment like there is absolutely no way that anyone could start a podcast centered around TAMS people and not include you. Like uh, the invitation to you in your email was not a side thing. It was very much intentional. It was very much thought out because we are so grateful for your involvement with TAMS and just in our lives in general. Thank you. Thank you very much.